Are you a pastor? I don't know. Yeah. He's an elder. I know yeah. that. Pastor Brad Beers. Um, yes, he's here this morning. Um, Jesse really wanted to be here. This oh, this is yours. Yeah, don't steal it again. Um, but he uh, he lost his voice, so he's not able to be here. So they get the B team. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The Christmas season is finally here. If you need a Bible, John is handing them out. John and Frank are handing them out. If you need a Bible, we're going to use it. If you forgot one or need to borrow one or just want to see what's available, grab one from them, wave at them, and go ahead and open it up to Isaiah chapter 9 because I, uh, I get the privilege to speak to you. I always say at the outset that I'm really excited to be here. It's always true, but this morning I am like exponentially excited because it is Sunday. It is actually snowing outside during a Christmas season. I grew up in Los Angeles. We decorated palm trees with Christmas lights because we're stupid in Los Angeles. And this is what Christmas is supposed to... Is it, uh, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. I love so many things. Like these lights, these like little twinkly lights that you're seeing. Every, I had these up in my dorm room in college. Not because I was a stoner, just because I liked the lights. Like, like we, somebody in our church just like paints a painting about Jesus coming because it's, because it's Christmas. This, is, this isn't something we buy. One of you made it, who is very tall, has a long beard, and his name rhymes with Schmim. <laughs> he would hate it, but I didn't tell you that he painted it. I didn't. I, didn't, I was just talking. But there's, there's glorious things going on. You walk into a normal store, right? And, and instead of the stupid, like, hip-hop slash pop slash whatever it is that the kids are listening to these days. They're playing Christmas songs. They don't know what they mean, but they're playing them. And it's, and it's about Jesus when you're going to like buy stuff in a store, which is fantastic. Everybody is sick because there's so much love getting exchanged from person to person right now. It is the, there's a reason why there's a song that goes, it's the most wonderful time of it, because it is the most wonderful time of the year. I might. You know, I say that and... <clears throat> you know, there's, there have been informal studies done that um, about 50 to 60% of people say that this time of the year is harder for them than any other time of the year. The National Alliance for Mental Illness did a study back in 2014 just of people who already at that point had been diagnosed with a mental illness. 64% of them said that their condition is worsened by the holiday time. That means that if you walk out those doors and possibly even walking in here in this room and you bump in to two people, one of them feels worse today than they did three months ago. So yeah, I, I actually do believe that it is the most wonderful time of the year, but I have to also be real about the fact that for half of people walking around, they wouldn't agree with me. And it, it causes me to just ask the question, do you, 
you ever feel like things just aren't the way that they're supposed to be? Like, like when somebody that you love or that you know dies, and I often think during that time period when you're reflecting on death, that our inability to deal with death comes from the fact that that's not the way that things are supposed to be. We weren't supposed to experience death. There should be no parentless children. People, young people abused and neglected who are needing to be cared by people who aren't their parents. And in as much as I love our fosterers and our adopters, I don't want to live in a world where that's needed. It's not supposed to be that way. People shouldn't have to feel lonely doing all kinds of stupid things to fill that lonely hole in their heart. There shouldn't be mental illness. We shouldn't need drugs. We shouldn't have to be talking about a homeless problem. We shouldn't be arguing about what's a corrupt leadership. Things just aren't the way they are supposed to be. Now, though this isn't my main point, one of the points that immediately jumps into my head that's kind of encouraging and kind of intriguing is that the fact that I feel, and probably most of you in this room feel, that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, we can deal with that from a Christian worldview. The atheist in the secular worldview, they have no answer for why they feel like things are different than they ought to be. Because for that worldview, they just are. There isn't an answer for why they should be different. Fortunately for us, for thousands of years, people have known that things aren't supposed to be the way it is around us. And we've been writing about it and learning about it. One of those passages is in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to read probably the most obscure verse from the passage this morning. We stand just to try to use our bodies to remind our minds that what we're doing by looking at this text is significant. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Spirit, I ask that you would use this time to communicate to your people. Let this time be a time when we would see you more clearly and grow to love you more deeply. Amen. You can be seated. Yeah, so I'm going to be talking about Isaiah chapter 9, which really, I think, addresses a bit of what it was that I was talking about, that things aren't the way that they ought to be. But before we jump in, I want to make, uh, I want to make just one quick statement. Um, you, if, you have, if you were like one of the one and a half people that came to my 
Old Testament prophecy class a couple of years ago, you will be reminded of what I'm about to share with you because I know that Old Testament prophecy is some of the most difficult stuff to try to understand within Scripture. There's a lot of confusion. And I'm not going to unpack for you everything that you ought to know about Old Testament prophecy, but I do want to show you a diagram because I think this diagram has helped me understand how to deal with Old Testament prophecy. Take a look at this picture. What do you see? A bullseye. Okay, so we see shooters and archers say, seeing a bullseye. And we see anything else? Which would be a bullseye. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> oh, a tar- oh, Target like, oh, like white girl store Target. Got it. <laughs> okay, sorry. I didn't think, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Okay, moving on. So <laughs> we, you might see that, right? So that might be what it might represent to you, right? But for the literalists among us, what, what do you actually see? Okay, an eyeball, three circles. I, the, the, literal, the literal thing you would see would be, you, you see three circles. And for those of you that did better than me in geometry, they have a name for this kind of circle Oh my gosh, did you just say it? Yeah. Wait, are you saying it firmly? Do you know for a fact? Yeah, I am that smart. Yeah, I kind of know. <laughs> Concentric circles. They, they share, they co-center. They share. You, you can see three separate circles. And when you look at it from this direction, you see three separate circles. Only because I made them three separate colors. Right? Because if they weren't three separate colors and they didn't have circular borders, you wouldn't see three. But for the sake of this illustration, if you take a look at this concentric circle and you look at it this way, you can still make out three, but you could definitely make it out if you were standing to the side of it. If you were standing at the side, you might see it this way. Now, Old Testament prophecy is probably best understood if you recognize that at the very same time, these three things are being written, but from this view and not this. And what these three things represent would be, if we, let's call the blue, something that is to happen in even our future, something way ahead of us still. The red would be something that was happening in the past of the prophet, making the prophecy or writing the text of Scripture. And the white would be the situation that was contemporary to what the author was writing. When we look at it from the side, we can start to pull the three things apart. The past, present, the future, the future of the prophet, and even the future of us. But when you're looking at it within the text of Scripture, it is most often written from this perspective, where the past the present circumstances, the future of the prophet, and then the future for us are all being written within one picture that is not all nicely and neatly divided out for you. Now, I bring this up to tell you that as we talk about this passage this morning, there are things going on in Isaiah's life that he's going to write about. There are things that had happened in Isaiah's culture that he's going to reference. 
There are things that are happening in Isaiah's future that he's going to reference. And there are things still to come that even we have not seen that he will reference. But he will do it all from within that perspective of writing them all commingled. And it's important for you to understand that as we dive in. That being said, let's go to verse 1. We've already read it. Isaiah chapter 9, 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Stop. During the time in which Isaiah is writing, you may or may not know that the nation of Israel was actually probably better described as two different nations. You see, even though God had promised this chunk of land to the Hebrew people, they, they did what people normally do. They didn't get along. And so a portion separated from the other portion, the northern portion of the kingdom, was often referred to as Israel or Ephraim. The southern portion of the kingdom was referred to as Judah. And those two areas of the nation of Israel were almost separate nations such that they had separate kings during the time in which Isaiah was writing. Because as part of the constant biblical story, it continued to repeat, it continued to cycle, the northern kingdom had forsaken what God had asked of them. And what God does in response to his people, typically when they sin in Scripture, especially on a national level, is he uses another nation to come in to act as his punishment. In this specific case, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, was under punishment from a people known as the Assyrians. The Assyrians had a special way of conquering. Yes, they would conquer like the kings of old, where they would come in with military might and take over a specific area. But they had a technique that worked really well for quelling any future rebellions. You see, if you try to just keep a, the, the group of people that you have conquered, just kind of sequestered in their specific area, that gives them the ability to remuster their strength and to rebel against you. The Assyrians had figured out a trick. What they would do is they would take a portion of their people and co-mingle them with the people that they had just conquered. And so the nation of Israel became an area of half-breed individuals who were no longer pure Hebrews, but so many of the people had been co-mingled and intermingled with the Assyrians. Now, that didn't mean that they escaped what typically would happen if you got taken over by another nation in that they had to work for the Assyrians. They were put into slavery. So it was a time of darkness, a time of gloom. Go back to verse 1. In the former time, he, God, brought contempt in the land of Zebulun and the, the land of Naphtali. Those were regions in the northern portion of Israel. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You ever heard of Galilee before? There was a guy that was kind of a big deal that did some stuff around Galilee. You remember that? That Jesus did the majority of his initial ministry in the Galilean region. 
This was the area that Isaiah was prophesying to, that though you are in darkness and gloom and slavery now, something is going to come where we're going to switch the system around. And look at how he describes Galilee at the end of verse 1. Galilee of the nations. Some of your version may say something different. Somebody who's got a different version, what's it say? Galilee of the Gentiles. Softball question for those of you who are new here. What's a Gentile? Anybody who's what? Not a Jew. Nailed it. Galilee of the non-Jews. Isaiah is prophesying into a time frame where the Assyrians had already co-mingled into God's people and they had defiled and polluted the land with their non-Jewishness. God was going to take this dark time and make it light. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. These co-mingled Assyrian slash Jews, these nations, these Gentiles in the Galilean region were suddenly going to be the light of God. And it continues, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Raise your hand if, I, need, I didn't speak fast enough, don't just raise your hand. Raise your hand if you grew up farming. See, I, I'm surprised to, say, to, to see this. There have been hands in both services. Because I normally would say, I know that none of you have grown up farming, but we have some farmers among us. And they have placed aside their corncob pipes or whatever it is that they use to tell the rest of the world that they're farmers. For the rest of us who didn't raise our hands, who are not the three or four who raised our hands here, you probably, may, may, you might need to talk to them later. But the time of harvest, is it a happy time or a sad time? It's a happy time with a giant asterisk. It is also, I talked to some real farmers, yep, some real ones after the first service. It's also during the time of harvest, a time of immense work. 3 a.m., getting up every single day, and you do it over and over until everything has been harvested. But when you're done and you look at what you've received, think of the joy that would come. If you were just a subsistence farmer, Right? If you were just growing just to keep yourself alive, you pull whatever it is that you got out of the ground, and now your family can eat. Sweet. But if you're not just a subsistence farmer, maybe you're farming for money, you're trying to do some type of trade system, now you are pulling stuff out of your ground and you're trading it for money. And money means your family can eat. Sweet. It's an exciting time. And we don't get the joy. That's where we kind of came up with this like whole harvest idea, these harvest festivals, because they were joyous times celebrating the fact that everybody had looked around and said, look, God has provided for us. God has acted and brought us things that will keep us alive through another year. 
Let's enjoy. And it was a giant party together. This is what the nation of Israel, that northern kingdom, and also those who are receiving this prophecy have to look forward to, that there will be a time in which we have this party ahead of us. We will party like the harvest. Why will this happen? Before we get to it in the text, I don't speak Hebrew I know that may be a shock to you, but this doesn't look very Jewish. I don't speak Hebrew, but I, I know one word at least. I know a few, but I know one. And I'm, I think you probably have heard of it before too. Let me throw it at you. Have you heard this word shalom? What's it mean? Yes. Kinda. Here's what's great about words, right? Is that, yes, they, they do have kind of one meaning, but sometimes they have a range of meanings that you can kind of stack on. So yes, shalom does mean peace. And we're going to read the word shalom numerous times in the rest of the verses we're going to cover today. But don't just think one thing when you think peace. When you think of shalom, what it meant to the Hebrew was that everything is as it should be. Completeness. Wholeness. That things that had gone wrong are now being set right. That was shalom. That no longer in the presence of shalom would you look around and say, things just aren't the way that they ought to be. No, instead... If you are in shalom, if you have shalom as part of your experience, everything is as it should be. What was going to bring this shalom? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. I told you that the northern kingdom had been enslaved by the Assyrians. And the picture of the poetic prophet here is to, is to picture them like beasts of burden. They didn't have international harvester tractors to do their farming. They had oxen. And in order to plowing, to get those oxen to pull, whatever you were using to plow with, you would put a yoke over the two oxen to keep them moving together. Isaiah describes the people of Israel as having to bear the yoke of a beast and work to death for the Assyrians. But things were going to get set right. Like, at the end of verse 4, do you see this? Like, on the day of Midian. Anybody remember what the day of Midian is? Okay, good, because I didn't either. I, I'd get paid to do this stuff. I had to look it up. And then I got really excited. Sometimes when you, like, study a little bit deeper, you start to see things that are being referenced in the text you didn't even know are being referenced. The Day of Midian is a reference. I'll tell you the name, and now you're going to start to go, oh, a few of you will be like, oh, yeah. Remember the name Gideon? Before he printed out New Testament Bibles and left them in hotels. <laughs> Let me tell you the story of Gideon real fast. 
It's called the day of Midian because, like I said, when God's people failed God, God would use another nation to come in and punish them. The nation this time, because God's people had failed, the nation this time was the nation of Midian. And in Judges, we're told that for seven years, the Midianites enslaved the Hebrews. And they enslaved them with such an oppression that people were afraid to even be seen by the Midianites. They were that dangerous of oppressors. In the midst of this time, God picks a warrior. But when I say warrior, I don't mean some dude that's like yoked out with muscles or has all of this warrior skill. You know who he finds? He finds Gideon, who's a professional baker. Not quite the action hero you're used to seeing, but it gets better. You know where he finds him? Hiding in a hole in the ground. God shows up on the scene to Gideon, who's hiding in his hole, and goes, Hail, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, Exactly. Are you talking to me? And like, not in the cool De Niro sense, but like, are you talking to me? Or is that Pacino? It doesn't matter. Whoever it is, like, he doesn't believe that God is actually talking to him. But God, seeing what he was going to do with him instead of who he was right now, says, Hail, mighty warrior. Takes him out of his hole. This guy, even after this point, still doesn't believe God and ends up throwing out sheepskin on numerous occasions and like has God do this like testing thing where like the ground's wet and the sheepskin isn't and then he flops it around because he doesn't trust God. He's not the most likely hero for a story. God says, put an army together. We're going to kick Midian's butt. He's like, okay, I guess. If you say so. Puts a bunch together and God shows up to Gideon and goes, hey, Good job. Your army's too big. Okay, sweet. I mean, I, I have no skill as a soldier. I'm putting together more people with more people will probably have a fighting chance. You're telling me my army's too big. God whittles it down through a series of circumstances until Gideon has 300 people with him. 300. I don't know how that number sounds to you, but think about it this way. In that stupid movie about the Spartans called 300, in the final battle where 300 guys are fighting, what happens to them? They all die. All 300 of them. And as attractive as that is to young teenage male minds, they're dead. 300 is not a fighting force. Those were warriors. They all died. These were people who were afraid of the Midianites. God says, grab a jar, light a torch, surround the camp at night. Okay, God, I mean, you've been talking crazy this whole time. I don't just figure it out, right? They surround the Midianites. They blow a horn. They break the pot, just showing their torch, and they stand there. And God in a way that you don't want God to fall, falls on the camp of the Midianites, and they all kill one another. They just slaughter each other while the nation of Israel stands there holding glow sticks. <laughs> in a way that God could have, only God 
could have won the victory, God wins the victory in the day of Midian. When will shalom start to show itself? It is when God is starting to win the victory in a way that only God can. It will seem crazy. It will seem impossible. But just as in the day of Midian, God will act. And shalom will come, verse 5, looking like this. Oh my gosh, I love this verse. And every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The picture that Isaiah takes there is he says that the soldiers will be able to take their uniforms and their boots off and they'll only be good in that day of shalom by just, they'll only be good as fuel for the fire. I don't know if you know me, if you know anything about my story, I only work at the church as a pastor part-time. The other thing that I do during the rest of the week is I work for the police department, which means that a couple of days a week, though I'm not super stoked about it, it's where God has me, I strap on a gun and a bunch of other junk and I go out and I try to protect the citizens of this town. I hate that. Here's what I mean. I hate that we live in a world where police are necessary. I'm not saying it in terms of the defund the police. I'm saying that someday in Shalom, when God has finally brought about what he's forecasting here in this passage, there will be so much co-love of neighbor, so much respect and appreciation for one another that we will not need police officers. And I will cry, yes! Because I won't need all that junk I have to put on to try to solve those problems. And the soldiers will be next to me crying, yes, as they're burning their uniforms, as they're burning their combat boots. We won't need them anymore. That will be shalom. How will God do it? Verse 6. For to us, a child is born? Stop, stop. You've heard this passage a million times. Stop. A child? That's how we're going to fix this? All of this stuff that I just talked about, the stuff that we really want, we're going to fix it with a baby? Have you held a baby? There's someone holding it. Look, look right there. I'm going to do it because you can handle it. Look right there. There's a baby being held right there. How useful is that baby? <laughs> New parents trying to find all the positive answers, avoiding the reality that they're useless. Now, if you know me, if you really know me, you know I'm a sucker for babies. I love babies. I love babies. And, and they are so useless. But I love them anyway. God's going to fix this problem with a baby? Look at this baby, though. This is some baby. A son is given. And look at the first thing, for those of you that watch too much Fox News or CNN, the government will be on his shoulder. <sighs> look at what he's going to be called. 
The name will be called Wonderful Counselor. The counsel of this baby, this grown baby, this new coming king, the counsel of this baby will be wonderful and wise. He'll be mighty God. The almighty God will be in the power of this king. An everlasting father, a fatherhood that lasts forever, never walking out on a family, never banishing a child, and prince of shalom. Wholeness, completeness, all things set right. In verse 7, and the increase of this government and of this shalom will not end. Stop there for a second and realize what it is that you just read. It didn't actually say it will not end until it ends. And then we won't need it anymore. It says, and it will not end. The shalom that I have been desperately trying to describe for you, that I've been trying to entice you toward, that can only come in this coming king, that shalom doesn't end. It keeps going. There will be a time where we'll be, hey, remember 400 years ago when we got to experience a bit of the shalom of Christ? Isn't it better today? Because it keeps increasing. The increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end to it. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, a justice system that actually works. Can you believe it? I know that sounds like sci-fi fantasy. Why will it work? Because it will be with righteousness. Everything will be right. It will be from this time forth and forevermore. How are we to ensure that we will be able to experience this shalom? How is this going to come? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I remember the first time I read that phrase, the Lord of hosts. Like I said, I don't know Hebrew. So it took me a little bit to try to, like I had to dig in. The Lord of hosts could be translated Yahweh of the Sabaoth. And I was like, Yahweh of the Sabbath? Like the napping God? Like the God that takes rests? No, not Sabbath. Sabaoth. Well, what's that mean? Dug in. Yahweh of the Sabaoth means the Lord of the armies. The Lord of the angel armies. I told you about one battle story. Do you remember the other battle story where there's a prophet that gets surrounded by his enemies and they're closing in and the prophet has his protege with him and the protege is freaking out. We're going to die. And the prophet says, God, can you just open his eyes for a minute? And the protege's eyes are opened by God and behind the surrounding armies are an exponential army of angels behind them and says, that's why. We don't have to be afraid. You see that? You think we have to do anything? That's the Yahweh of the Sabaoth. Those are his armies. And those armies can accomplish any task that is needed. And it will be his zeal that will ensure that that shalom 
will be passed on. Now, I'm reading this in this coming Advent time because, as you probably know, this passage refers to the first and second coming of Jesus. The first coming behind us, in which that baby became a king, but not a king like anyone expected. A king whose reign began, but he left temporarily and said, don't worry, I'm coming back. But when I come back, it's going to look real different. And that's when we're really going to start to experience some shalom. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we prepare to respond to God with another song. But let me finish just by saying this. I'm pretty sure I don't need to convince you that things in this life are not currently as they should be. But what I've wanted to tell you, that the reason is that this time of year is the most wonderful time of the year is that we're celebrating the birth of a king who has come. And he has started his reign and will one day return and he will bring with him the peace and the shalom that he has promised to us. I know that things aren't as they should be. But as time seems to increasingly grow more pregnant, the king is preparing his second coming. And he will bring with him that shalom that we long for. May it come more quickly. Merry Christmas. Amen. Let's stand. When the day of judgment has come, John says, in the book of Revelation, and the Lord of hosts has cast down Satan's power and his kingdom reigns on the earth. John says, there was great rejoicing by the multitudes of heaven and they, they stood and they shouted, amen, hallelujah. And I think our father deserves that praise today. Let's shout amen. amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's sing that doxology.